Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Get your Bible, if you have one, wherever you are, um, God sees you there. And I'll be talking a little bit later about how distance makes no difference at all. So wherever you are, uh, we are together in the name of the Lord. And let me encourage you to open your Bible to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is kind of a theme verse for this message. And uh, I'm calling this message, A Shelter in Place. <laughs> Could I have your attention, please? We need everyone to shelter in place. I mean, what kind of of a sentence is that, really? I'm sure it was carefully crafted to include all groups and offend no one, but it's all kind of surreal, isn't it? I mean, this is like a science fiction movie, but the plot is real and the pain is genuine and the uncertainty is significant. And so... Isn't it wonderful to open God's word and be together in what it has for us? Um, As the U.S. government has challenged us to shelter in place, I was mindful of Psalm 91, uh, verse 1, which says, He who dwells in the presence of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Just think about that for a second. He who um, dwells in the shelter, shelter in place, Where's the real shelter? It's not my home. It's not my apartment. It's not even my car as I move about with essential duties only. It's where God is, where the presence of the Lord is. David said, one thing have I desired, and that will I earnestly seek, that I may dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life. So Psalm 91.1 is saying, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he who consciously places himself like you're doing right now by joining this time of worship, by putting yourself under the sound of God's word, you're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High and the promise is that you will abide or remain under the shadow of the Almighty, that you'll sense God's presence, that his shadow will fall upon you. And I pray that this moment, God, as we open your word, as we get into it together, we are mindful that as our government uh, takes courageous steps, and we do pray for them and pray for their wisdom and pray for them to be supported as they so much need. God, they're doing their very best in such a difficult situation. Would you help them and give them wisdom beyond their own? And as they seek to take care of our bodies, we are mindful of the words of Jesus, not to fear the one who can destroy only your body, but the one who can destroy your body and soul in hell. And so we turn our attention now to the greatest of issues, and that is the sheltering of our souls. And so we ask you to minister to us and to make our faith strong. You say that faith comes by hearing your word, and we turn now and tune in to hear your word and look forward to the faith that will be the result. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we turned over here to Second Peter. Uh, man, have you even been to Second Peter? That's one of the books in the New Testament I've never actually preached through, and I look forward to doing that in God's time. But in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, a little run-up here, 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Here it is, wait for it. By which he, that's God, the Lord, has granted to us his precious and very great promises. NIV translates that great and precious promises. New American Standard uh, says magnificent and precious promises. In this instance, I kind of like the New New King James, which says exceedingly great and precious promises. That's what I want to talk to you about today. If you're wondering, what does God have for me? What does God give to me? What does God provide for me in the toughest of times here, sheltering in place What does he have for me? He has this. He has his promises. Now, because we're joining with a new uh, family of faith, I need to give you a little warning. I am, uh, over the next 10 days, you might need this. I am exceedingly devoted to maximizing the opportunity given to us on the spring calendar known as April Fool's Day. In fact, some would have considered me somewhat of a cruel father. I would Every year there was something. I mean, every year there was something. I would say to my kids, um, one time I remember specifically running through the house at 6 a.m., beating a pot, get up, get up, get up. We're late for school, we're late for school. I had changed every single clock in the house and the kids come running down the stairs, dragging their book bags and their clothes behind them and off we go, we get in the car. And of course, with every clock change, they had no idea and we get in the car and I was like, 6 a.m., April fools. And we took them out for breakfast, but it was hardly a remedy for the traumatic wake up we gave them. And once our kids caught on, I mean, today our kids all have don't answer dad on their phone for April Fool's. I can't get them at all anymore. So we had to turn to neighbors and others. In fact, I like to tease my kids so much that I had to develop with them this code. When dad says, I promise, that was inviolable. To this day, are you serious, dad? Are you serious, dad? If I say, I promise, that means I'm serious, you know, as a heart attack. But of course, what do I really mean? I only mean that I'll do my best. I only mean that I'll try my hardest. Only God can actually make a promise that is inviolable. All the rest of us mean, I hope to, I intend to, I plan to, it is my desire to, but it's something far more than that. When Peter speaks here of that God, by which he has granted to us his exceedingly great and precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I mean, I mean, wow. Now, promises, this is a very significant thing, a little uh, toward a definition here. When we speak of a promise, the dictionary would suggest that it is a declaration of what someone will do. It implies a positive consequence um, in relation to a negative threat. Now, when someone makes a promise, they are accountable. In fact, the character of the promiser is on the line when a promise is given. What's interesting is, is that you can't study the Bible for very long without coming to the conclusion that God is by nature a promiser. I mean, you can't get into the Bible very far at all until by Genesis chapter three, we already have the gospel promise that in regard to this serpent that has cast the human race into sin, that uh, he will um, bruise the Messiah's 
heal, but that God will bruise his head. That's called the protevangelium. That's the first gospel reference in all the Bible. And from there begins a cascade of promises that isn't even wrapped up in Revelation 21, where God is saying that someday he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither will there be any more pain. And so from Genesis to Revelation, our God is a promiser. For example, he promises Noah never again to destroy the world by a flood, Genesis 9. He promises a place and an innumerable people as descendants to Abraham, Genesis 12, and to Isaac, Genesis 26, and same to Jacob, Genesis 28. He promises to deliver the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, Exodus 6. He promises blessings to the people of Israel for keeping the law, Deuteronomy 28. He promises victory to Joshua over the Canaanites, Joshua 1. He promises an everlasting throne to David and his descendants, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And on, and on, and on, if God is talking very long, he will be making promises to his children. In fact, the motif of promise and the fulfillment is one of the most important motifs in all of Scripture. It would not be a stretch to say that the Old Testament is filled with the promises given and that the New Testament is filled with the promises realized. God, our God, is a God who loves to make promises. And ultimately, when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns, every promise will be fulfilled and all will say through eternity, does not the Lord of the earth do what is right? Well, with that as a backdrop, let me just say that every scriptural statement is not a promise. Be careful what you give that characteristic to. For example, in John chapter 16, verse 33, um, uh, Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Awesome statement, not a promise. Um, when the scripture says, there is no rock like our God, incredible statement, super comforting and entirely true, not a promise. Uh, look for the words that actually indicate the ultimate resolution of a threat by the intended action of the promiser. Or maybe to give a more carefully worded definition, here's promise. An assurance God gives his people so that they can walk by faith while they wait for him uh, to work. How does that sound to you? An assurance that God gives to his children while they uh, walk by faith and wait for him to work. Now, every time we see a promise in scripture, our first response is to believe. God makes a promise and we have to ask ourselves, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that? Of course, uh, faith in the promises of God is absolutely important, but wait for it. I think the tension comes because... As we walk with the Lord, we start to realize that um, there is a gap between hearing the promise and receiving it. Do you relate to this? How many things are, are there that God has told you and you say, well, I believe it. I believe it. The problem is I haven't received it yet. And God promises that he'll bring the prodigals home, but it hasn't happened yet. And God promises that he will, um, that no good thing will he withhold from him who walks uprightly. But I can think of a fair number of good things he's withholding from me today or so it would seem. And so what do I do now? What do I hold on to? This is the life we're living. We have this, but we're waiting for this. And what does God give me in the immense tension-filled time between this 
and this. What does he give me? What am I to hold on to? I should hold on to my financial security. That's what I, I should just grip it so tightly. And, and until I see God work, I'm going to have what I've saved up. Well, we're all seeing that evaporate, aren't we? So that's out. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hang on to my, I'm going to hang on to my spouse. I'm going to hang on to my, my closest and most treasured family member. And I'm going to lean into that person who makes me feel so secure, but The scripture says that we all fall in many ways and there's not one of us that hasn't caused disappointment to another or certainly experienced the same. That's what life is all about, the dashed hopes of those we trusted in and found out that like us, they were only imperfect reflections of an awesome God. Where do we turn? What do we trust in? What I want to suggest to you is is that what we do is we trust in God's promises. The thing that God has given us to hold on to in the gap between I believe and I receive are his promises. His prom God's made some promises y'all. God's made some promises y'all. And what's really interesting is as I did this study for the first time several years ago and candidly have leaned on it very heavily myself in the last few months. There are actually categories of promise in the Bible. There are things that he says over and over and over and over and over and over, different words, same promise, different in wording, same in essence, same promise. And each of them is an antidote, actually. Each of these major category promises is an antidote for something that um, we actually struggle with. But before I even get to that, I have to just, Circle for a moment here on the Holy Spirit words in 2 Peter 1, 4. Note, first of all, that these promises are great. Why are God's promises so great? Perfect. Here's why. Because they come from a great God. God doesn't make lame promises, y'all. God doesn't make lame anything. His promises are great. Listen to this. Psalm 145, verse three. Great is the Lord and his greatness is beyond fathoming. Fathom is a picture of depth. And no matter how deep the ocean, you can't get to the bottom of the greatness of God. Great in power. Jeremiah 32, 27. I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? Talk about a rhetorical question, right? If you're in a room and some other people are participating with you, watching, listening, you might turn to them and say, I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? But we have trouble quoting it. This is where the messenger needs to disappear and the message needs to come out. Here, listen, listen. Word of God, speak. I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? Now, what is it that is looming large in front of you today? I maybe could imagine, but you don't need me to probe. You know very well what it is. Let the God of the universe, so aware of every promise he has ever made, speak this into your spirit now. I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? God forgive our shallow prayers and our 
momentary waiting and our quick insistence that he close the gap now and our living as though he has left us without resource while we wait for him to fulfill and receive what we say we believe as though he's given us nothing when he's given us so much. These promises are great because they come from a great God. These promises are great because they cover the great issues. As we go through this study, God willing, in the weeks to come, you're going to see that the promises are directed toward the great issues we face. For example, they deal with fear. My finances, my family, my future, what's up ahead? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to be okay? And God has promises directed toward fear. We'll come back to that. Um, They deal with the great issues like fear and doubt. Is this the right path? Is this the right decision? Am I doing the right thing? Doubt can be such a downer and such a destroyer. God gives us promises about fear and doubt. God gives us promises about despair. You know, despair is the worst thing of all, and I confess to some days of despair. Nothing will ever be new. Nothing is ever going to change. Things are now as they always will be. Well, sure, without God. And this is why we come back again and again to his word, which builds our faith and, and where we review the promises that God has made. Peter says that they are great promises. They come from a great God. They cover the great issues and they give us great comfort. You know, I've had some time to think and I wish in certain ways that I had spent more time just reading the word of God over the Lord's people. And if you've turned from your sin and embraced Jesus by faith, then you're one of the Lord's people. May I read the word of God over you? Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Get it? First you get it, then you give it. First you get it, then you give it. I've got it, I'm giving it. Are you getting it? Are you gonna give it? Here we go, verse five. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Say amen. Come on. Come on, y'all. I got to run back over that one. But to rely upon God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf 
for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Oh yeah, (laughs) these promises of God are great, y'all. They come from a great God. They cover the great issues. They give to us great comfort and they lead to a great life. I don't know what's coming this week. I don't know what's coming this month, but we have God on our side. If God is for us, can you finish it? Can you finish it? If God is for us, that's right. Who can be against us? The answer is no one, no one. We have God. God's got this. Forward we go together in God's strength. Amen. Or as Pastor Jeff likes to say, amen. I love that. Amen interrogative, calling upon the people of God to say, yes, it is so. The word of God is true and the promises are faithful. I love that. Now, because I like to belabor every word in the text, because if it mattered to the Holy Spirit to give it to us, it must matter to us. Notice that it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse Four, that by which he has granted to us his, not just his great promises, though they are great, but his exceedingly great promises. Greater than anything else. Greater than anything else. What if someone were to come to your door from your neighborhood as you shelter in place and they were to say, listen, I have heard word on the street is people are saying that you have Something we don't have. What is it? Well, I have my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the promises that he has made to me. Faithful people have tested the promises of the Lord for 2,000 years. The promises of God have been found difficult and not tried, but they have never been tried and found lacking, to echo the words of Chesterton. The promises of God are exceedingly great. They're great. Or to put it in the vernacular, we would say they're the best. The promises of God, man, the promises of God are the best. Man, the promises of God, they're the best. What are they? They're the, they're the best. Come on, say it there in your living room, wherever you are. God sees you there. The promises of God are, say it. They're the best. They're the best. What are the promises of God? They're the best. I could go on about this for a little while, but I'll, Keep moving, that's fun preaching right there. The promises of God are the best. Now this, they're exceedingly great. If you're following along in your Bible, you know what's coming. They're exceedingly great and precious. They're precious. Now precious, (laughs) precious is a grown-up word, y'all. If your four-year-old comes into the kitchen during the shelter-in-place mandate and says, hey, dad, I've got this. I, I'm going to take care of the groceries and I'm going to take care of the heating bill. You're going to be like, what? What, kid? What? That's sweet. That's sweet. But no, well, we're not, we're, that's, really, that's really sweet. Come here and you give him a hug and, and he means it and he wants to help. But see, um, a kid just couldn't understand what they're offering and their idea of something that has value could never be captured in a word like precious because to a child, quick, easy, available, now, that's where the value is. But when Peter was writing 2 Peter, Bible scholars believe he was at the end of his life. He was at the end 
of his life. And we know from church history, it's quite reliably known that uh, Peter uh, knew that his execution, his martyrdom for the gospel was coming. For some, it came quickly and unrecognized until it arrived. But for Peter, he knew for a time so much so that he actually requested and was granted his final request that he would be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner of his savior, Peter, in the gospel. So young, so brash, so assertive, so quick to speak, but Older Peter, more mature Peter, he is a very, very different man. He is slower, he is softer, he is quieter, and he knows what's precious now. In fact, in Peter's writings in the New Testament, we hear about the precious blood of Jesus. And the precious faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes us as precious stones in the building that God is making. And he speaks of a precious savior. See, precious is a grown-up word. Precious is a mature word. And so when Peter says that God's promises are exceedingly great and, say it, precious, He's making a value statement that could only come from really understanding. God's promises are exceedingly great and precious. Precious takes time. Here's another little thought. Uh, Precious uh, takes proving. Every time I come to the concept of precious, which isn't frequent because it's not frequent in the Bible, but every time I do, I kind of think of that. uh, Remember that character? Remember that character from Lord of the Rings? That uh, Gollum guy, and uh, we want it, we needs it, we, right? And my, my precious, right? And why, why? Because he believes that he has, it's a fantasy, I get it. But follow me. He believes that in the ring, everything he needs is found there. So much so that nothing else matters If I have everything but don't have that, I have nothing. If I have nothing but have that, I have everything. And when Peter says that God's promises are exceedingly great and precious, precious takes proving. God's promises are precious to us when we discover firsthand that when you put your full weight down on them, they hold you up. Yes, they do. God's promises hold us up. And I grew up in Canada. I have several actual memories of walking out on thin ice late in the winter or earlier in the late fall and seeing the ice crack and jumping back to shore. No fear required. No carefulness needed. God's promises will hold you up. And I guarantee when they have, they will become more precious to you than anything else. Think of all the things your heart is looking for and longing for and think about how you've been waiting for some of it and how you know and believe the things that God has promised, but you're not there yet. 
These are the things that he has given you to hold on to, to cherish, to come back to again and again and again. And how fresh are they to you and how familiar are they? And how during these days of uncertain health and uncertain finances and uncertain future, I did actually study the whole Bible and categorize God's promises many years ago now into five main categories. And the first promise that I want to talk about in the remainder of our time here in this introductory message is I want to talk about the promise that God makes as a provision for our tendency to fear. How many of you relate to that? Have you had some fear this week? Have you noticed an elevated fearfulness, that simmering anxiety about things beyond your control? This might interest you to know that fear is a primal emotion. Fear is a primal emotion. Love is not primal. Joy is not primal. By primal, we mean so rooted in human nature that it happens without trying, like grief or anger uh, or feelings of dread. These things, you know, nobody goes down in the basement and says, I'm going down in the basement. I'm not coming up till I'm afraid. No, you never ever. When did you take that class on how to be afraid? Never took it. Never took it. Comes, it's visceral. It's inane to human nature. It is part of our fallenness. Few concepts are as common in scripture. Did you know? Did you know? A fear 441 times. Uh, afraid 167 times, tremble 101 times, terror 78 times, terrify 41 times, a dread, panic, a frightened or faint 920 times. One of the most common exhortations from God's messengers throughout scripture, 33 times, fear not, fear not. What does God want to say to a church to his people sheltering in place. Not sure exactly, don't presume to speak for the Lord, but trying to do it and inviting him to use his word through this messenger to do that for you. Now, we're for sure not way, way outside the lines, given how many times his messengers say it in the Bible that one of the things, that God would say to you right now, fear not. Fear not what? You fill in the blank. Fear not about blank. If you're writing things down, write that down. I'm not going to fear anymore about blank. Fear not. It's so, so common in scripture. In fact, so much so, contextual exhortations not to fear. Abraham was fearful about his lack of a male heir. God told him, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, Genesis 15. Hagar was afraid to watch Ishmael die. God told her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, Genesis 21. The Israelites were fearful as the murderous Egyptian armies backed them into the Red Sea. But Moses said to them, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. He will work it for you today. Exodus 14, wow. David was afraid for his life on many occasions, but he penned these words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which by the way is not really dying. The valley of the shadow of death is not the dying, but the hardest part of living. 
And when you're in that darkest valley, interest, when you're in that deepest fear, the God of the Bible offers what you need most when you're battling fear. And what we need more than anything else when we're afraid, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. More on that in a moment. Solomon was afraid to lead the nation after his great father David, but David told him, be strong and courageous and do it. Don't be afraid and don't be dismayed for the Lord, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Notice that in many of the biblical contexts, when the condition is fear, when the circumstance is fear, the provision is God's promise. I am with you. I am with you. Jeremiah was afraid when God called him to prophesy to a hard people, but God told him, do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you. God knows you. God knows your heart. And when he sees fear in his children, he knows what to promise. God's provision for my heart and yours when filled with fear is I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Keep in mind that fear is the complete state of anti-God. Fear is not from God. Anger can be righteous. Grief can be healing. Doubt can be helpful if it puts us on the path of God's leading for our life. But fear has no place. Just turn to somebody in the place where you are and say, fear has no place. We got a place. Fear has no place. Fear has no place in my home. Fear has no place in my family. Fear has, no, fear has no place in this church. Fear has no place among God's people. Like, you got a verse for that, man? I love when you ask questions like that. Or at least I imagine you asking. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Well, where did it come from then? I already said it's part of our brokenness. It's part of our fallenness. In fact, I was hoping to be preaching on Romans 8, but that's not what God has for us and all things in God's time. But you knew I'd want to dip into Romans 8 a little bit. Romans 8 says that God has not given us a spirit of bondage again to fear. So fear is a bondage. Fear is a bondage. I'm, I'm chained to this way of thinking. I'm attached to it. What breaks the bondage of fear? You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, Romans 8, but you have received the spirit of adoption. You're one of God's children. You are a dearly loved son or daughter of the King of Kings through faith in Jesus, and he loves you, and his eyes are upon you, and he promises for our fear that he will never leave us or forsake us. Isn't that incredible? So many of the passages in Scripture actually say this. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 says, can a man hide himself in a secret place? Do I not fill heaven and earth? See, God is with us. And I've often uh, taught that we need to make sure that we don't get omnipresence and manifest presence confused. And yes, God is everywhere. Now, hang on. God's not everything. You know, that guy's like out in the forest and he's like, Oh, God is here. God is the trees. God is not the trees. God made the trees, y'all. Oh, I just sense God so much when I'm near the mountains. Awesome. Thank God for making the mountains. But God isn't the mountains. That's pantheism. 
Well, I just feel closer to God. Awesome, awesome. Go, move to Yosemite. But it isn't God, y'all. We sense God as we gaze upon what we intuitively know didn't come from an explosion in space. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. We sense in his creation the reality of his existence, but we don't ascribe to the created thing the characteristic of creating. The Bible says that God spoke and the worlds were formed. So, yes, we can sense God in creation and worship him for creation, but God is not the creation. Romans 1 says that's part of our downfall is making that error However, God is everywhere. Theologians speak of God's omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere, maybe more properly understood is not so much that he's in our presence, he's in my basement, he's in the attic, he's across the street. It's more like distance makes no difference to God, that we are actually all living in his presence. That is reality. I'm gonna put up a picture here of one of my heroes This is um, Murray McShane, Robert Murray McShane. And uh, he lived only 30 years in the 1800s. And yet he's famous for this sentence. McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a thousand enemies. Yet difference makes no difference. He is praying for me. I want to show that to you in, can you guess? Can you guess? Yeah, Romans 8. We kind of changed this all at the last minute. So I had a couple of little Romans 8 things I just couldn't get free from. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31. Is your Bible open, y'all? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I think I already quoted that. I really like that. That's like, Remember when you were a kid and you go into the schoolyard? Remember, right? And you're like, man, here comes the bullies. And you're like, God's with me. It's, it's going to be all right, right? When you have the biggest, when you have the best, when you have the most, when you have the forever, there's really a whole, not a whole lot to fear when he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Wow. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, here it is. Well, how, how for me is he really? This will help. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you understand the point that's being made there? When you've already given your best, when you've already given your most, What are you not going to give now? God already gave his son. What are we asking? Could you help me with my fear? Sure. Could you make your presence more felt in my? Sure. Could you kind of keep in mind these financial uncertainties that are? Sure. Got it. Done. I gave my son. I gave my son. If you've already given your son, what what can we ask for now? They're like, fine, fine, fine. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any of the other things that we all tend to fear? No, we are more than conquerors. You know the next part? Through him who loved us, more than conquerors. Well, I just don't feel that strong today. It's not you. It's him with you, in you. Through. I just don't know that I'm really, I'm not up for it either. I'm not okay with anything. I'm not, not. But our confidence is in the Lord. Our trust is in his promises and the reality that when I, what time I am afraid. In fact, I probably one of my favorite, favorite, favorite little illustrations of all time is about the two Scotsmen who were um, arguing about the most comforting scripture. And one of them quoted Psalm 56, three, what time I am afraid I will trust. And the other one said, yeah, that's pretty good. I used to kind of lean on that, but now I have Isaiah 2, 2. I will trust and not be afraid. You see, and that is God moving us from, when I'm afraid, I'm going to trust. That's what's ahead for you this week. When I'm afraid, I'm going to trust. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Every five minutes, every five hours, every five, just keep at it, keep at it. What time I'm afraid I will trust. What time I'm afraid I will trust. He is with me, he is with me, he is with me, he is with me. And then you'll get to, I will trust and not be afraid. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me that. Teach your church that today when it's most significantly needed. So, God's promise to be with us, with us, with us. A final verse. Let me just put up on the screen. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse six. How's that? Man, it's so awesome when you're preaching and you just flip the Bible and it opens right to it. I'm having a good time. I hope you are. Here it is. Deuteronomy 31, six. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. Now, if what I'm teaching, there should be some promise coming about how he's with me. I am with you is what God offers for fear. Is it coming? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes, you should be able to finish it, with you, with you. It's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Where are you going? Nowhere. Where are you going, Lord? Nowhere but it's been kind of hard. I feel like I've disappointed you. Aren't you going to leave? No, others left. Won't you leave too? No, I will never leave you. Think of it. What a beautiful promise. There's some things that God's told me are going to happen, but I don't have them yet. And I'm holding on to his promises. What are you holding on to? Our second son, Landon, is preaching at a church in Phoenix now. And I've always been a huge fan of John Wesley, a great, great preacher of the gospel, a tireless, inexhaustible servant of Christ. When I had the privilege of being in England, I had to go and find Wesley Chapel and the place where John Wesley is buried. Here's a picture of that. I remember standing there and praying more than 20 years ago now and being reminded of probably the most famous, that guy preached and preached and preached and preached, and yet the thing he's most famous for is the thing that he said on his deathbed. Man, 
I don't know if anybody will be there when you or I go to glory, but it doesn't surprise us that people were just hanging over the edge as John Wesley was breathing heavily and seemed to be nearing the end. I don't know what his final paragraph was. I don't know what his final sentence was. But John Wesley's final phrase was this. Best of all, God is with us. And then he died. But let that phrase live in you in the days to come. In the days to come. Sheltering in place, absolutely. Sheltering there with the Lord. No fear, for he has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And God's promises, yes, they are. They are exceedingly great and precious, aren't they? So, Father, we surrender ourselves afresh, not to what we think, not to what we feel, not to what we're hearing from the pundits, but to this unchanging reality. You are with me. You are with us. You are with your children everywhere as Preachers doing what I'm doing are reaching out to people, doing what these are doing, and all of us are needing the same thing. A deeper awareness of your great and precious promises, and for this specifically, for our fears. Thank you, Lord, for your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. It is true. We believe it, and we're holding on to it. In the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.